Awesome. Well, as Sarah Beth said, welcome everybody. Uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Nice full room. Awesome. Hey, I like that. Great. That was really awesome. Uh, uh, my name is Seth. If you don't know me, I am one of the uh, pastors here at the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. And again, as Sarah Beth said, I mean, we count it an honor and a privilege to uh, have you guys kind of all assembled here this morning uh, just to connect for the next hour, hour and 15 minutes to kind of hear from God and just to be together. It's a really good thing. Uh, for some of you, uh, you know that we've been going through maybe the past three or four weeks a series, and you can see it up there, and you saw it on the bumper call that we're calling Creatures of Habit. One of the things that we've been kind of saying in this series is an overarching idea or theme is that we are creatures created by God, and as creatures, that means we are in many respects, contingency beings. And what I mean by that is created by God, we kind of rely on certain things in our lives in order to to flourish, to find vitality in life, and that we sort of need to intake certain good things, even in a physical sense, in order to survive and to thrive and to grow. And what we've been saying in this series is because we are creatures uh, of God, the creatures that God created, that uh, we also need spiritual habits and that there are spiritual habits that are available to us, that God extends to us in order to grow and to thrive in the life that he's given us. So that's kind of like an overarching thing that we've been doing in this series. And throughout that, we have been hearing from some different communicators, uh, some different people who have uh, been uh, preaching to us and uh, kind of unfolding that vision in God's word to us. And so this morning, actually, it is my honor and privilege as well to uh, invite Pastor Dan Gregory from our Norton campus just down the road, Cleveland Maslin. He's going to be sharing, uh, the, uh, sharing with us this morning on this series. And so let me just tell you, we love Dan Gregory around here. Okay, this guy is awesome. He's a phenomenal communicator of God's word, and we are just so excited to have him here. I'm personally excited. Uh, recently, Dan and I had an opportunity to um, kind of connect in a, in a teaching series that we did, and so we were doing some preparation, and when he came to film a couple things that we were doing in relation to that series, he just so clear, so good, it literally blew my face off. Like, I had to have reconstructive surgery, okay? <clears throat> So, so good. We love this guy, and I just want us all, if we could, to extend a warm welcome to Pastor Dan Gregory as he comes to share this morning. Thanks, Pastor Dan. Guys, crazy. Well, good morning. Good to see you. You have no idea what a privilege it is for me to come. I love coming to this campus. I love being with you. For me, it's kind of fun because I get a chance to reacquaint some of you I know and so I haven't seen for a while. Others of you, it's my first time getting to meet you, and I'd love after the service, if I've never met you, to have a chance to kind of shake your hand, tell me your name. I'd love the chance to meet you, but it's so fun to be here. I also love the leadership team here, and I love spending time with them, Seth and the rest of the crew. I spend a lot of time with Tony, and I don't need to tell you this, but you have a phenomenal campus pastor here who does a phenomenal job, and congratulations is due to them. If you haven't heard that, uh, they brought a new little baby girl home, and so God has given them that gift. This morning, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, so let's kind of get started. I want you to grab a Bible if you have one. If you don't, grab one. I think there's some in the chairs and things like that. I want you to turn to the book of Matthew, and I'd love for you to go to chapter 6 in the book of Matthew and kind of lay that in your lap this morning. If you're not familiar with how to get to the book of Matthew, your Bible is split into two parts. There's an 
Old Testament, that's the first part, and the second part is called the New Testament. Matthew's the first book, and the second part, and just go to chapter 6, lay that in your lap. It might be beneficial, too, if you had something to write down some notes, because I think we're going to talk about some things that are worth your writing down this morning, and my hope and my prayer this morning has been that some of what we're going to talk about is going to benefit you and hopefully even transform a habit in your life. We've been doing a series called Creatures of Habit. And uh, what we've been saying is we're all creatures of habit. Uh, read something or heard something two weeks ago that said about 40%, this was interesting to me, about 40% of what we do is habitual. Now, I have no idea whether that's true. I don't know how you'd prove that, but it makes sense. We don't need to make the case up here that we're creatures of habit. You already know that. You can sit there, and if I gave you enough time, probably all of us in the room can think of some bad habits that we kind of have in our life, right? Some of you are smiling over here, so you don't need to take a lot of time to think about that, right? Probably if I gave you time, you could think of good habits that you have in your life. Some of them you're very intentional about. Truth is, some of the good habits that we do, we don't think about because they become habits and we just kind of do them. And so we'd have to really think about those habits and maybe they become so routine that we'd have to be intentional in thinking about them. Here's what I know. We're just going to get honest, right? We not only have bad habits, we not only have good habits, but some of us have weird habits. Is there anybody with me in the room? Anybody? Come on. Yeah, or your spouse has weird habits. Maybe you don't, your spouse does. But we have weird habits. I grew up and my dad had a weird habit. Now, my dad's with Jesus now, so I know he'll forgive me for using him as an illustration, right? But my dad had a weird habit. See if you think this is weird. But I grew up watching my dad every night come home, he'd take his shoes off. That's not weird. That, everybody does that, right? And then I'd watch my dad, he'd take his socks off. That's not weird. It kind of seems natural. But after my dad would take his socks off, he'd do something weird, right? You tell me if you think this is weird. Every time he'd take his socks off, he'd smell his socks, right? Anybody, raise your hand if you think that's weird, right? I mean, that just seems kind of weird to me. I remember as a kid thinking, why does he do that? Man, I hope he doesn't do that when my friends are over. You know what's weirder than that? I'm a dad. I got three kids. Every night, my kids would watch me take my shoes off. They'd watch me take my socks off, and I have no earthly understanding of why, but every night I smell my socks just like my dad did for all those years. In fact, what's weirder to me is that Friday night I was at my son's house. He's married now, and last week I preached the same sermon, used the same illustration at the Norton campus where my daughter-in-law and my son go. And I looked across the table at my daughter-in-law, her name's Jessica, and I just said, does he? And she said, he does. He takes his shoes off, he takes his socks off, and your son smells his socks. I have no idea why. But y'all got them too. Don't judge me, right? We got weird habits. All of us have habits. Here's the way I've been saying it. Okay, I want you to think of it this way. Pastor Tony led it this way. We reap what we sow. It's a principle. No way around it. We reap what we sow. In other words, our habits are like seeds that we sow into the soil of our life. And over time, the fruit... The results that our life grows are consistent with the seed that we've sown. Maybe another way to say it is this. People come to my office, I like to say it this way to them. The decisions that you make today or the habits that you develop today will determine your tomorrow. Makes sense, doesn't it? And some of you know that full well. You've seen that play out in your life. So the month of January traditionally is a great time to say, you know, I got some bad habits I need to get rid of, right? Some of you have already thought about habits you want to eliminate in your life because they're bad habits. 
Others of you, you think, man, there's some good habits I need to put into my life because I want some good fruit to grow. And so I want to start doing some things, exercise, eat better, some of the spiritual habits that we've been talking about. And so we think about bad habits we want to eliminate, good habits that we want to put into our life. This morning, I kind of want to think about it in a different kind of way. I want to talk to you this morning about the possibility of sowing a good habit in our life, right? Is it possible to sow a good habit and to do it in the wrong way? And because we're doing it in the wrong way, it can be very discouraging, disenfranchising, disillusioning, and even harmful. Let's build a case for it. You already know this, very elementary example, but you already know something that it is possible to do a good habit, develop a good habit, and to do it wrong. You already know that. Elementary example would be two guys go to the same doctor. Let's say both of these guys were skipping meals. Let's say the doctor looks at them and he says, listen, you need to stop skipping meals. You need to develop the habit of eating three meals a day. Both guys could hear the doctor and say, I'm going to start developing that habit. I'm going to start eating three meals every day. But you and I both know they could develop that habit and come back to that doctor six months later and it could have produced very different results in their life. Particularly if one of those guys decided, I'm going to eat breakfast at McDonald's, lunch at Wendy's, and supper at Domino's, right? He's eating three meals, but it's producing different fruit. What happened? He decided to plant a good habit in his life, but he did it in a wrong way. And what happened was, it became something that was harmful to him. Why do I tell you that? Listen close, because I want to talk to you about a habit that most of you, ready? Most of you are planting in your life already. Most of you have already developed this, you're doing it, you're participating in it, yet I've been a pastor for over 20 years and I know this, that most people do this habit, have developed this habit, and yet most people are either confused, disillusioned, discouraged, bored, or harmed because of the way this habit is playing out in their life. And it can be rather confusing to talk about. This morning I want to talk to you about the habit of prayer. I want to talk to you about the habit of prayer. Here's what I know. Most of you are already doing that in your life. Studies and statistics say this, 94%, that's a pretty good percent, right? 94% of North Americans pray. That's amazing. 94% of us, if we're kind of status quo, pray. That's what it says. Now, the study goes on to say that the average amount of time that a North American prays is about one minute a day. We'll get to that in a minute, right? But 94% of us pray. So let's start with this. What's what's prayer? Well, maybe an easy definition is there's an author, maybe you've heard his name, his name's Tim Keller, and he simply says prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. Easier way to remember it is this. Prayer is me interacting with God. It's me interacting with God. And so if 94% of us pray, here's what I know. Think about this. Prayer is an instinctive habit. I like to think of it this way. If we've been created by God, so we are created, he is the creator, that maybe our creator hardwired in us this instinct to interact with him. You already know that people pray. Religious people pray. I don't need to make a case for that. You know that. Three main religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, 
at the very core of their beliefs is what? Prayer. Jews pray three times a day. Muslims five times a day. Christians have all kinds of ways in which they've developed the habit of prayer in their life. Buddhists pray. Hindus pray. Religious people pray. What's fascinating is non-religious people pray. People who would say, I'm not religious. In fact, the most fascinating part of the study that I read was this. Now, check this out. 30%. of those who say they are atheists say they pray. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, I don't believe there's a God, but 30% of those people say, but I pray. So here's what we know. Prayer is an instinctive habit. Prayer is a good habit. And yet I would suggest to you that prayer is something that in many people's life has become very confusing, disillusioning, discouraging, boring, and even harmful. And it begs the question, why? And I would suggest to you this morning that maybe the reason why is all in how we've learned to pray. If you think about it, how do we learn to pray? Well, I can almost guarantee this. You might be different, but most of us didn't learn to pray by reading a book on prayer. It's not how we learn to pray. You know how we learn to pray? We learn to pray by listening to other people pray. We learn to pray by observing, by kind of watching and kind of leaning in when other people pray, which is the very reason I think prayer is very confusing. Because if you have observed people pray, I don't know how many people you've heard pray, but people pray in all kinds of different ways. You ever observe somebody pray? I mean, I grew up listening to people pray, and there are all kinds of ways people pray. And it can leave you wondering, what's the right way to pray? I remember as a little kid kind of observing the different ways people prayed. I don't know if you've observed that and kind of made note of that. But I had friends, I'd go to their house, and they're what I would call routine prayers. You ever been around routine prayers? Here's how this works. Like, they pray the same prayer at the same time every day. So, so some of my friends were this way, and it was kind of interesting for me to watch. But every time we'd sit down to eat, certain friends, they would have a prayer they prayed. I don't know if you've ever heard it. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. You've obviously heard routine prayers, right? Or maybe if you were staying the night and their parents were routine prayers, they would pray something like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Did you ever think about the next part of it? And if I die before I wake, you wonder why your kids can't sleep through the night. It's like, what's going to happen, right? I pray the Lord my soul to take, right? Routine prayers. Then there's some people, and, and you've met them. Maybe you're one. They're what I would call Hail Mary prayers. You know what that means? I mean, if you're a football fan, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because a Hail Mary pass is what you do at the end of the game when everything else has failed and you've got to do something out of desperation, right? That's the way some people pray. When all else fails, I think I'm just going to hit my knees. What else do I got to lose? I might as well pray, right? I'm kind of a Hail Mary prayer. I remember observing people, they were grocery list prayers. You ever seen somebody like that? They had a notebook and that thing was full. It had 10,000 names in there, 10,000 things they were praying for. And they'd go through that list and kind of praying for people by name, praying. And they just kind of had this thing carried around with them. They were what I would call grocery list prayers. And then the most fascinating to me were the vending machine prayers. You ever been around somebody like that? You see, it's like this. If you just put enough faith in, you just have enough faith, prayers like, push the button, and what you ask for, ba-bam, comes out, right? 
And so there's this cosmic vending machine, and prayer is me kind of pushing the button saying, God, here's what I need, and I believe I'll get it, right? I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people pray. I remember, if I'm just being honest, that what really confused me is watching people pray at church. That seems weird that that would confuse me, right? But it felt like people pray different at church. I don't know if you feel this way, and not around here, but if you've ever been to a church where it's like people use this different tone of voice and different language, like our father, and they talk in ways that we don't normally talk. I remember as a little kid, I used to sit right there. And my dad, when he would stand up to pray, everybody's out here, and the worship band was up here, and there was a guy back in the corner. His name was Watson. Okay, it's kind of a weird name, but Watson, right? And he would always do something that confused me. Because my dad would be praying, and Watson would be talking out loud while my dad was praying. Now, I grew up, I don't know how you grew up, but my parents taught me that's rude. You don't talk out loud when somebody else is talking, right? But Watson did. My dad's praying, and Watson's back there, hallelujah, praise God, that's what I say. And he kept going on and on. And I remember as a kid, I'm peeking, I'm like, what's going on? He's going to get in trouble, and he didn't get in trouble. In fact, the further my dad went, the more energetic he got. And I thought, well, this must be how you pray. I remember as a little kid down there, I thought, I'm going to join in. That's right, Dad, keep going, you go now. And I kept talking while my dad's praying. Listen, prayer can be confusing. And here's what I know. Some of you are planting that habit in your life, and you're frustrated. You're disillusioned. It's been harmful. You're not sure how to get your hands around it. And the chances are you might be sowing a good habit into your life and possibly doing it in the wrong way. And I know it sounds weird to say that. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. It's a good place for us to start. But it is possible for me and for you and for us to pray wrong. You don't have to agree with me right away. Just kind of let that percolate. You ought to write it down. But it is possible to pray wrong. And I would suggest that sometimes that when we go about praying wrong, if we don't correct that, that it can be as harmful as never starting in the first place sometimes. And I'll show you why. Now, some of you are sitting there, Dan, how in the world do you know that it's possible to pray wrong? That just sounds wrong to say, doesn't it? Well, the only way I can say that to you this morning is because Jesus said it. I mean, that's the only way I can say it. And in your laps, you have your Bible open to Matthew 6. And so I'd love for you to read with me and let's make some observation. Look at verse 5. By the way, this is Jesus talking. And this is what he says. When you pray... See what he's doing? He's like, you pray. I assume you pray. Like if Jesus was here today, he's like 94% of you pray. So when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Who are they? Well, if you're not sure who that is, just think church to people who kind of really, really religious, right? They're like all about church and whatever and whatnot. And they were hypocrites. They were one way on the outside, a different way on the inside. He says, they love to pray. They're praying all the time. Like these guys were the polished really good prayers. Like, these guys were the guys you'd want to come pray at your wedding. Like, they could pray really good. He says, when you pray, don't be like them, because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, I want you to go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. What's he saying here? He's simply saying, hey, listen, don't pray like those people, the hypocrites, those religious people. I realize they're really good prayers. They're polished, but they're praying wrong. Well, why are they praying wrong? Well, if you read, you see they're praying to the what? Wrong 
audience. You see, they're praying and their whole goal is to what? Impress other people. You ever been around somebody like that? You ever done that yourself? Come on, we're just being honest, right? I mean, there's two ways that we can pray to impress other people. You ever think about this? One is this. I'm sure none of you have ever done this, right? I'm sure that's never happened, but maybe you've heard people do it, right? But you pray and you pray out loud so that the people who are listening will be impressed with you, right? And so you pray, and when you get done praying, your whole goal is like, wow, Dan, you're a good prayer. Like, Dan, if I was wanting somebody to pray at my wedding, you're the guy I'd pick. Like, Dan, you must have like this really tight relationship with God. I can tell by the way you pray. And so my whole goal is the way I pray will somehow impress the people who are listening. A lot of you in the room know Pastor Jeff Bogue, senior pastor of Grace Church. He, he likes to tell a story about being in an event. It's an interesting story, but where a guy stood up and I think for five minutes went on and on and on and on about his wife. How much he loved her, how beautiful it was, how, how, how he cherished her, how he honored her, how smart she was. All this stuff for about five minutes, he just glowingly talked about his wife. <clears throat> After the event, Pastor Jeff ran into his wife. And he's like, wow, you have to just feel so good. Your husband went on and on and on. I mean, that had to make you feel special. She looked at Pastor Jeff, and this is what she said. She said, I hate it when he does that. Jeff was confused. He's like, why do you hate it when she does that, when he does that? This is what she said. Because he never talks to me or about me that way at home in private. Isn't that interesting? He only does it when other people are around because he wants them to be impressed with what kind of husband he is. I think that's all Jesus is saying. Like sometimes we can talk to God and we forget who we're talking to because I just kind of want you to be impressed with who I am and how I pray and I want to make an impression on you. But here's the deal. I not only pray so that you'll be impressed with who I am. Sometimes I pray, listen, because I want to make an impression or say something to you through my prayer. You ever been with somebody prayed that way? Like they preach in their prayer? This is the way your mama prays when you haven't been to church for about four weeks, right? And you go to her house for supper. You ever prayed this way? Like, hey, let's join hands for supper, kids. And she's like, dear God, I thank you so much for the privilege of going to church every Sunday. Help us not to take that for granted, you know? I mean, she's preaching and she's talking to you, wanting to get a point across in her prayer. I think all Jesus is saying, when you pray that way, guess what? Guess what? Good habit. Wrong. Wrong audience. And he's saying, if that is what your habit is, to pray to impress others, find a room nobody knows about and start talking because the audience of prayer, the real audience, he can hear you in that closet, in that special room, wherever it is you're going. It's not like that's the only way to pray, but if... You pray in public and never in private. You may be developing this habit in the wrong way, in a way that could be harmful. Jesus is equal opportunity. I love that. Look back at your Bibles. He doesn't just say, hey, the church people are doing this. He says, verse 7, when you pray, assume you're going to pray. 94% of you pray. Don't keep on babbling like the pagans. You know who that is? That's like non-church people, non-religious people. They're not necessarily followers of Christ. And they pray. Why do they pray? Because they think they're going to be heard because of their, what? Many words. They keep reciting the same things over and over and over again. And they think, God's going to hear me if I just say this enough times. He says, verse 8, 
Don't you be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. He's saying even the non-religious people, they pray, and he says, don't pray like them. Why? Because they're praying, not necessarily to the wrong audience, but with the wrong motive, the wrong intentions. What was the motive? Well, they saw prayer and see prayer, and maybe you do this morning, as this religious activity that if I just keep saying it and reciting it and talking, I'll get God's attention. Like they saw prayer as a way to get God's attention. So if I say this many Our Fathers or recite this prayer this many times or this many Hail Mary, whatever it might be, maybe God will pay attention to me. Listen, this is key. This is key. And Jesus is like, no. Like good habit, wrong way. Don't pray. This is key. Don't pray to get God's attention. Listen, he says pray because you have God's attention. Big difference. He's saying, don't pray, keep babbling and reciting and going on and on so that somehow God will start paying attention to you. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to pray because God is paying attention to you. And God wants to hear from you. Which therefore leads Jesus to say what he says in verse 9. He says, this then is how you ought to pray. So if you're taking notes, I'd write this down. I can learn to pray. I think Jesus makes that clear. It's like, okay, it's not just about pray. It doesn't matter how. He's like, I can learn how to pray because Jesus said, I want to teach you. Like, who better to learn from than Jesus on how to pray, right? If you're going to listen to somebody pray, it's like, okay, Jesus would be a good place for me to start, right? And so he says, this then is how you should pray. And here's what I think Jesus does, and this will frame the rest of what I want to talk to you about this morning. I think Jesus... When it comes to this habit of prayer, he changes the picture. We need a new picture for prayer. And the picture he gives us, I think, is one that will revolutionize the way many of us pray. You see, prayer is interacting with God. And what you see in what Jesus is teaching is he refers to God as Father. Here's the picture. It's as though Jesus wants us to see this picture where God is sitting at the head of a table as a father. And he's inviting you and I to take a seat at his table. He sees you, he loves you, and he invites you and I to take a seat at his table so that he might have a relationship with us and that he might interact with us. That's the picture. It ought to beg a question. We got to clear this up. Because some of you, my guess would be, might have this. And the question is this, aren't we all God's children? I mean, isn't he everybody's father? God's the father of everybody, and aren't we all God's children? And I want to tell you something, it's going to confuse some of you, and it might not sit well with some of you, and maybe you've never heard it before, and it might surprise some of you, but I need to say it. The answer to that is no. No. We aren't all God's children. You're like, Dan, really? He's not everybody's father? Really? I'd say, no. He's like, Dan, why would you say that? I can only say that because that's what Jesus said. In John 14, 6, maybe you've never heard this. It's worth writing down. He, Jesus said this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, the only way for me to take a seat at this table where God is my Father is for me to come with Jesus. It is the only way, guys. It's the only way. The only way for me 
to recognize and respond and acknowledge God is my Father is for me to place the, my hand in the hand of Jesus as my Savior. You see, Jesus, that's the gospel. He came, he lived a life none of us in this room has ever lived. And then they killed him. You know the story. You've heard it. You've watched it. Why? Because he died the death. He didn't deserve, but I did deserve to die. Why? So that if I would place my faith in him, my hand in his hand, so to speak, if I would put my faith in Jesus as Savior, I can be forgiven of my sins, I can be sure of my salvation, and I can have a seat at the table where God sits as the Father, inviting me to interact with him. Fascinating. You see, prayer revolves around a relationship that I have with God as my Father. So then Jesus says, once you come to the table with Jesus, he says, this then is how you should pray. And many of you know this prayer. In fact, many of you have recited it. Many of you have it as plaques on your wall. But this morning, I kind of want to just dice it apart real briefly. And I want to ask ourselves five questions by looking at this very famous prayer of Jesus that will help us maybe even revolutionize the way we pray. Do you see how Jesus starts? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Fascinating, isn't it? He starts by saying, I want prayer. If we're going to pray in a way that recognizes we're coming to the table, I want to recognize who the audience is. And the audience is a God who is in heaven. Listen, the audience of prayer is no less than God, the God who spoke, bam, it was. He created all that there is. He's the God who sees eternity past into eternity future. And he is the God that the Bible, God says, nothing is too hard for him. And that God says, you can come to my table and call me daddy. That's mind-blowing. Here's what it makes me think. It makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what it must be like to be Malia and Sasha. Raise your hand if you know who I'm talking about just by their names. Those of you who don't, see if this won't help you out. Their last name happens to be Obama. They are the teenage daughters of President Barack Obama. The man who lives on Pennsylvania Avenue behind that big fence in that big white house and sits in arguably the most powerful seat on the planet right now, they call him Daddy. The man that the Secret Service protects and keeps others away from, they run and give a hug and say, Father. you imagine what their life must be like? Here's my guess. I'm just guessing. But my guess is that the younger you are, if you're the president's daughter, that you really focus on the the intimacy of it. He's my daddy. That's how I know him. But the older you get, you probably begin to connect the dots that the man who played kickball with me, had tea parties with me, happens to be talking to world leaders and is the president of the United States. Like, if you are the president's daughters, there has to be this weird combination of intimacy and awe as to who your daddy is. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. I think prayer is this weird combination, this mysterious, incredible, profound combination 
of intimacy and awe. I think a good question to start with when I pray is simply this. Am I, when I pray, when I develop this habit, experiencing intimacy and awe? Am I somehow warmed by God's grace and wowed by His greatness all at the same time? You see, prayer is the boyish freedom to run into my daddy's office anytime and realize that my daddy happens to be the king of the universe, the creator of all that I see. It reminds me of the picture some of you in the room as I'm looking around are old enough to remember President John F. Kennedy. And there's a picture that has circulated for years and years, and we'll throw it on the screen, but he would sit at his desk in the Oval Office, and there was a little door underneath of his desk where his kids were allowed in and out, right? And that's his son peeking out the door. What a fascinating picture. There's his son sitting underneath of the desk, going in and out of his door, and sitting at the desk is his daddy, who happens to be the president. Listen to me. Prayer is simply this. You and I have intimacy with the Almighty. You and I, when we have a seat at this table, we are a kid of the king. That is mind-blowing. Here's what I know. If you're like me, if you're like me, it's very easy to struggle with one or the other. Here's what I mean. Some of you in the room are like, you know, Dan, in my prayer life, I have lots of intimacy, but not much awe. And so you like talk to God. It's like, you're, you're, hey, you're at my homeboy. You know, you're like, what's up, God? Kind of like that, right? You know, so there's lots of intimacy. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. When there's intimacy, no awe, it cultivates flippancy. I never approach God flippantly. It makes me think of an illustration. I've used this down the campus I'm at, but I got three kids, and when my oldest was younger, they, he went through a stage where he was calling everybody dude. I'll never forget the day he walked in the door. He and I have a great relationship, and he looked at me, and this is what he said. He's like, hey, dude. Now, if you're a dad, I, I remember thinking, I swallowed hard. I'm like, that just didn't sit right. I don't know. It wasn't cool, you know? Here's what I said to him. He remembers it. He even talks about it to this day. I looked at him, and I said, we got to make sure we're on the right plane right away, don't we? And I said, listen, Joel, I love you. I'm your dad. I'm not your dude. Right? Different. You see, God is not our heavenly dude, but he is our heavenly father. And so there's the intimacy that somehow has an all that understands I'm talking to the creator. I'm talking to the sovereign. I'm talking to God. But some of us struggle over here where we have the all but no intimacy. And so our prayer life is cold, it's regimented, right? It's distant, it's ritualistic. I mean, it would be just as weird if my son Joel came to the dinner table and said this to me. Oh, grandfather who provided all that I haveth, you know. And if he did that, I'd be like, you're weird. What's going on, you know? I mean, it's just not real. Listen, listen. Respect that doesn't have relationship will always lead to empty conformity. Respect, and I respect God, no relationship, empty conformity. For some of you, like, man, that feels like my experience with God. So I'm saying, well, Dan, how do I get to the point where I'm experiencing all and intimacy all at the same time? How do I get there? Here it is, right? Here's the application for this. Here it is. I got to sit there long enough for that truth to run me over. Like, I, I, I got to carve out enough time for that truth to run me over. And it's probably not going to happen in one minute a day, is it? 
listen, I, I understand, man, we are busy, but here's what I'm pretty sure of. I'm pretty sure that for me to realize who it is that I'm talking to isn't going to happen if the average amount of time that I talk is one minute a day. I, I get it. I, I pray in my car. I pray all the time. I think it's only going to happen if I do what Psalm 46 says. You ever, you ever heard this? Be still. Shh, be still. Shh, stop. Stop everything else you're doing and know that I'm God. Realize who you're talking to. Truth is, for some of us, the best way we could apply what Jesus is teaching is just simply start to carve out time to allow this truth of who we're talking to to run us over. You see what Jesus does next? He's something here. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's interesting. He doesn't start with my needs, my wants. He's like, your kingdom, your will, right? And so here's the picture. He's like, prayer is coming to a table. At the head of the table is your father. And check this out. Your father's a king. And he has a kingdom. And he has a will. And he's expressed his will. Where? In his word. And so this, I promise you, if, if for some of you, this will revolutionize the way you pray. pray. And that is this. That prayer is a continuation of a conversation that God started. It's a different way to pray, guys. It is a different way to pray. In fact, you ought to ask yourself this question. Am I answering God when I pray, or am I just expressing myself to God when I pray? Am I answering God? Sounds weird to say it that way. I get it, but just write it down and let it percolate. Am I answering God? Or am I expressing myself only to God? I believe that it's at this point many of us experience frustration, disillusionment in our prayer life. Most of us in this room pray the way I pray too many times, and that's this. I come to the table of prayer, and you know what I do? I do all the talking. I don't know if you're with me on this, but I come like, la, 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 and I'm just going to town, right? And when I do all the talking, you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about my will and my kingdom. I'm just being honest, right? That's usually what I'm talking about. It's like, God, this and that, and you could do, you know, whatever. And so usually that's how I'm talking. I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and one of the most common questions I get is this. Maybe you've asked it. Does God hear me when I pray, and does he answer my prayer? That's a good question, legitimate. Let me answer them quickly. Yes and yes. He hears you when you pray, and he does answer prayer. But I think, I don't know if you ever thought about this way, I think God has a more important question for us this morning that might be more legitimate, and that's this. I wonder if God's question for us is, do they hear me? And do they answer me in their prayer? It's fascinating, isn't it? You see... Too often, I see prayer first and foremost as me expressing my feelings and venting myself to God. That's part of prayer, but that's not what it is first and foremost. What it is first and foremost is me hearing from God and then answering Him. Let me illustrate this way. What creates frustration for some of us in this room, if we're just being honest, right? It, it does for all of us at some point, is that we too often see prayer as this cosmic vending machine. In fact, we've been taught it. Some of us have been taught it. And so the way prayer works is this. If you have enough faith, put your faith coins in, right? You push the button. Ask. Whatever it is, push the button. And whatever you're asking is going to fly out, right? 
But you know from a vending machine this, that if you put the coins in the amount that you thought was necessary and push the button and nothing comes out, what happens? You get frustrated. You put a few more coins in and nothing comes out, you get even more frustrated. Heaven forbid you put more coins in, push the Coke button, and root beer come out, right? And yet that's the way some of us see prayer. We're like, man, I have faith. I put my faith coins in. Just got to have faith. Got to believe. God can, God can, God can. I push the button. God's not doing anything. Put a little more faith in. Man, I really, really believe this time. I push the button. Nothing. Sometimes I push the button, and it's like I'm getting something way different than I ask. So what do we do? Well, we do exactly what we do with the vending machine, don't we? We shake it. We kick it. We walk away and say, something's wrong with that machine. And that's the way some of you maybe have felt about God this morning. It's like God's broke. God, something's wrong with God. And I think all Jesus wants us to know is this, maybe something's wrong with our picture. That if prayer is more like this table where God sits at the head as the Father, He has something to say to us. And that's where it begins. And it makes me think of my youngest son. His name's Aaron. When he was in elementary school, every night he'd come to our supper table, he'd ask the same question every night. Every night. He's 17 now. And I, we were talking about this the other day. He said, yeah, Dad, I asked that every night. And I said, yeah, isn't that fascinating? Every night he asked us. You know what that was? He'd come to the table. We'd pray, pass the food around. He'd say, hey, Dad, <clears throat> what are you going to do tonight? Every night. Hey, Dad, what are you going to do tonight? I remember it could be exhausting as a dad because, you know, I'm like trying to come up with stuff, right? But what was he doing? You know what my son was doing? He was reorienting his little mind because whatever I was going to do, he wanted to rearrange whatever he was going to do to do what I was going to do. Hey, Dad, you going for a hike? I want to come. I want to do that. Hey, Dad, you going to Dairy Queen? I'm in, man. Hey, Dad, you going out in the backyard? Going to do some things in the backyard? I want to reorient and reframe my evening so that I can do what you're doing. Guys, listen to me. Imagine if we prayed that way. Instead of coming to the table and saying, push the button. If we came and said, Father, what are you doing today? What's it mean for your kingdom to be established in my life today? Your will to take place in my life today. I promise you guys, it will rearrange, transform the way we pray. If we stop and we, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I got to somehow begin developing the habit that you've already heard about of listening to God through his word. Whether that's start in the book of Psalms, start in the book of John, James, get a reading plan, whatever. But spend time saying, God, what are you doing? I want to be doing that. I want to answer you in my prayer, not just tell you what I need you to do for me. See how that changes things? Just like my son, I want to reorient so that I can partner with what you're doing, participate in what you're about. And then you see what Jesus does? It's fascinating. After we reorient, he says, now, give us today our daily bread. Isn't that interesting? It's like, I'm at the table. I want to reorient what you're about, I'm about. And then he says, 
I want you to give me today. That means that it's every day I'm going to find a way to get to the table. Maybe the question you ought to write down if you're taking notes is, do I acknowledge that I need God every day? It's coming to the table and acknowledging every day I need you. Every day. Saying, God, I need you. I'm thankful for what you've provided. I need you to provide today, and I trust you. If you have kids in the room, you know what I'm going to say, but... What's interesting about my kids is like they show up to my table, those that still live in my house, they show up like every day. Like they were there yesterday, and I'm pretty sure at lunch they're going to be there today, right? I mean, they just come. You know what I know? I don't know. Your kids might be different than my kids. My kids don't bring anything to the table. Is your kids like my kids? They bring, like my son's not like, hey, mom, I made the mashed potatoes today, man. It's not that way, right? They bring nothing. You know what else I know? That they come to the table... And I don't, listen, this is crazy, I know, but I don't charge them a dime to eat there. It's not a bad idea, trust me, but I don't charge them anything to eat there. They don't have to earn their food, and yet they show up every day at my table. Why? Because yesterday, they got a meal. And that meal was satisfying. It was exactly what they needed. And they'll show up today, why? Because they know they're going to get what they need. And they're going to show up today. You know what I know they're not going to do? My son Aaron is not going to take away a month's worth of food and store it up. He's going to eat what he needs today because he's going to come back tomorrow. Guys, that's all prayers. Prayer is me coming every day to the table. And when I come, you ought to write these words down. It's me saying, I'm thankful and content, God. Everything I have has come through your hands. But it's also me saying, everything that I need, I'm dependent on you to give me. And here's the kicker. This is hard. This is hard. I know it is. But it's not just me saying, I'm thankful and content. I'm dependent. But it's saying, I trust you. Listen. I trust that you're going to give me what I need, even if it's not what I wanted. I think I need to say that again. It's saying, I trust that you're a good daddy, and you're going to give me what I need, even if it's not what I came to the table thinking I wanted. You see, all Jesus is saying is when I come every day, I realize that's where I get what I need. That's where I get what I need. I need God. I'm thankful for what he's given me, and I trust God. He is a good father, and he knows exactly what I need. I think it's Tim Keller that says this. He says that if I knew everything that God knew, I would pray different. He knows what I don't know, and he gives me what I don't know that I need. And then Jesus goes something, somewhere that's very tender, that I think some of you in the room, maybe this morning need to hear, I don't know. Do you see where he goes next in the prayer? He says, then, Father, would you forgive us our, you see it, debts, as we have forgiven our debtors? It's like if you're writing down the questions, it's simply saying, do I admit that I need God's forgiveness? He's saying, forgive me where I've sinned. It's like, God, I know, recognize, admit, I need you to forgive me. But here's the picture. It's like, you expect to hear that in church, right? You expect to hear that in church. It's like, yeah, okay, I figured you were going to say that. But the picture is we're coming to a table where God is the Father. I want you to get this. I don't want you ever to forget this. And as you take a seat at this table, listen, listen. You sit with a father. You ready? He already knows. Whatever you're trying to cover today, trying to hide, trying to justify, 
trying to deny, trying to pretend isn't there, your dad, your father in heaven already knows. I got three kids, man, and, and sometimes they would get a little collywonker during the day. They'd be bad or disobedient or disrespectful or whatever. My, my, my wife would tell me, like, before I came home, so I would know, and they wouldn't know that I knew, right? And so we'd sit at the dinner table. Those conversations are always interesting because I wasn't the kind of dad who would just say, what were you doing? Like that. I'd sit at the table, and they'd come, and they'd sit down and say, how you doing? Good? How was your day? Fine. Anything you want to talk about? No. And I would keep asking questions till eventually they knew that I knew. And I would want them to tell me what I already knew. Listen, that's all confession is. Confession is me agreeing with what God already knows, guys. When you confess your sin, you're never informing God of anything. God already knows the stuff you pray no one else in this room will ever find out. He already knows what you're looking at. He already knows the relationship you're toying around with. He already knows the attitude you've harbored in your heart. He already knows. He is a good father. He knows. And what he longs for for his children, those at the table, is that they will come into agreement with what he already knows. That's confession. That we'll call it what he calls it and repent, turn from it. Because when we repent, we have less chance to repeat If we don't repent, chances are we will repeat. And so he says, I want you to come into agreement with what I already know. And I am a father at the end of the table. And here's what you can expect. You can expect that when you come into agreement with what I already know, I'm waiting to cover you with a cloak of kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And the more you come agreeing with what I already know, the more you experience that kindness, that grace, that love, that mercy, that forgiveness. Now listen, and the more you experience it, the more you begin to extend it. It's really hard for me to kick my brothers and sisters under the table when I'm asking my father at the head of the table to forgive me. That's all he's saying. And then he goes probably the most confusing place in the whole prayer. And this is where he lands. And this is where we'll end. It's it's a little perplexing. Or it's the most confusing part to me. He said, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. That's confusing. Some of you are confused by that. Because you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking. Doesn't the Bible say God doesn't tempt anyone? And you'd be right. It does say that in the book of James. Why would I pray God don't tempt me if he doesn't tempt anyone? And you'd have a good question. And I think the only way to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us here is found in that word temptation and tempt because it's pregnant with meaning. That word can mean two things, okay? It can mean a trap or a temptation, an enticement, or it can mean a testing or a trial. Now stay with me on this. Jesus said something to every one of us in this room. He says, you will face trials. Anybody just shake your head if you've ever faced testing and trial. You with me? Yeah, they're going to come, different degrees, different ways. He said, I don't want you to be surprised when they come. So why do I pray this way? Here's, I think, what Jesus is telling us. When testing comes into your life, it's praying, Father, I want you to train me through it. I don't want Satan to trap me in it. 
It's saying, Father, I want you to develop me through it. I don't want the evil one to devour me in it. That somehow when I face hard times, my knee jerk is say, God, take all the bad circumstances away from me. And the pain that I try sometimes to pray away might be the pressure that he places in my life to develop something that never would have been developed at all. And the longer I sit at his table, the more I want what he wants for me. Here's the question I want you to write last question, and that's this. Am I simply asking God to change me? Or do I find myself always asking him to change my circumstances? If you're like me, I can pray, God, if my finances were different, if my circumstances were different, if everything was different, then I think everything would be okay. And what God wants more than anything from you and I is faith, love, relationship, spiritual maturity. Makes me think of a lady in our campus, just got diagnosed stage four cancer. Sent me this long email and said, Pastor Dan, would you pray for me? And then she said, here's how I want you to pray. This challenged me, guys. I, I can't lie to you, it just challenged me. She said, Pastor Dan, please pray that I will not waste this cancer that I won't waste it by focusing on me, but that I'll use it as an effective witness to share with others that no matter what adversity they or myself are going through, we're not alone, that our primary focus is the Lord, and we can walk along perilous paths without being afraid. She wanted me to pray that God would change her, that she would use this time of pressure and pain in her life in a way that would develop something in her far greater than new circumstances might be able to develop. I think the longer I sit at this table, the more I want what he wants. The more I interact with God, the more I want what he wants. And I begin to plant this habit in my life in a transforming way. I'd love for you not to put your stuff away, but I would love for the band to come. Because I just want to ask you a couple questions that I think might be important for us to engage with. First is this. Can I ask you this this morning, and don't answer too quick in your mind. Have you ever grabbed Jesus' hand and allowed him to take you to the table where God sits as the Father? Don't answer too quick. I'm not asking if you've been going to church for a lot of years. I'm not asking if you can recite a lot of verses. I'm not even asking if you pray, because I already know 94% of us do. So I'm asking. I'm asking, have you ever recognized that Jesus, when he came and died, he did it for you? so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have hope, and so that you could have a seat at the table. If not, if not, why not? It's the first prayer that God hears as Father, as your Father. It's through Jesus. You can do that today, simply crying out to God, saying, I know that I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. I need Him to save me. I want to grab His hand through faith. I want a seat at that table as one of your children. Here's what I know. A lot of you are like, I've done that. Then can I ask you a question? I know you're sowing this habit in your life, but do you sit still long enough to experience the awe and intimacy of who you're talking to? Like, has it like blown you away, run you over? In your time where you talk to God and develop this habit, do you sit still long enough to be warmed by his grace and wowed by his greatness? If not, why not tomorrow? Begin to develop some time where you can pull a chair up to the table and allow that truth to run you over. 
Some of you are sitting here like, yeah, I pray all the time. But can I ask you this? Are you listening? Do you find yourself listening to God and responding to him and then saying, God, what are you up to? That's what I want to be doing. I want to reorient my mind around what you're doing. Maybe more tender is this. This morning, do you think you're pulling the wool over your father's eyes? You can't. He already knows. He knows what no one else in the room does. And he's eager for you to come to the table and agree with what he already knows. And some of you are scared to death to do that because you're like, what's going to happen to me? And I can tell you what's going to happen. I already know. He's waiting to wrap you with a cloak of kindness, forgiveness, and love in a way that will transform your understanding of the power of the gospel in your life. And so, Father, you're the one who is in heaven. We believe that. You see what we don't see. You're able to do what we can't do. And yet you invite us to talk to you in ways that we can hardly imagine. Thank you. We want to treasure you above and beyond anything else. And we pray that you would help us to reorient our thoughts around what you're doing. We want to be a part of that. We need you to give us this day what we need for this day. We are so grateful that you've given us yesterday what we needed for that day. And we trust that you're going to give us today what we need, even if it's not what we want. And God, forgive me for the attitudes, the sin that I'm covering in my life that you already know about. I want to call them what you call them. And I am confident that you're going to wrap me in a cloak of grace and forgiveness and mercy. Help me to extend that to my brothers and sisters. And God, I pray that you would transform Dan Gregory. The pain, the pressure, the things that I'm feeling right now in my life, God, I pray that you would use them to develop things in me that are of far greater worth than gold. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.